Hey, Chris. How's it going? Doing fine, Mike. How about you? Not too bad. Pretty excited, though, of the upcoming series of podcasts no. that we have. Tell me what we're covering, then. We're covering test cell design. So we'll cover approximately nine podcasts, give or take, but it'll deal with anything from ground-up test cell design, and the series of podcasts will home in on certain key areas that need to be considered when doing this or embarking upon a test cell. Sounds good, then. So if you start off with this, then, how do you work out if you really need a test cell? Good question. All I can do is relate to some of the personal experiences I've had, and sometimes you you don't. So how do you determine that? Well, there's a lot of things that go into it, and you need to think about what you're testing, what kind of testing you're doing. You know, are there safety regulations? And typically, there's safety involved with everything we do in life. There's some form of safety. Even if you're at home sharpening a lawnmower blade, you're going to wear safety glasses, hopefully. But you need to consider a lot of things to determine if you need a test cell. And in some circumstances, you don't. Maybe it's just an open floor area where you're spinning something. But typically, when you have a combustion engine, where you have that type of risk associated with fuel, Heat. Yeah, you'll, you'll need some form of containment, some yeah. sort of limit, yeah. Yeah, so if you had a fire, how do you contain a fire unless you have a, a pretty intense fire suppression system out in the open, which is possible, but it's not practical. But anyways, yeah, so that goes we, into it. Okay, then. so if we presume then we need a test cell, we've got to have a room that contains the equipment, contains, as you mentioned, the fuel and everything else. Let's take it from there and talk about the test cell design. I guess the first part of that is to, to determine the... Uh, the layout of the cell. Yeah. What this is boiling down to is developing the specification. You have to you have to design a test cell. You need to know what the specification is. You need to create that. And there's a lot of factors that go into it. So if you look at, you know, back to your original question, do you really need a test cell? You know, well, let's be careful or let's understand that a little bit better as we dive into this, because whether you need a test cell or not, you still have to think about all the things we're going to talk about. They still apply to some extent or another, but it does push you in a direction of specifics. So from a standpoint of a test cell or a non-test cell, let me back up, a non-test cell environment, if you look at the aerospace industry or aircraft industry, there's thrust test beds. Now, we working at FRU don't deal with thrust test beds too much, Right. But it's still in an environment that's somewhat a controlled environment. The engines, jet engines on aircraft are fairly large in size. You don't normally see them in enclosed four walls and a ceiling. Normally, it's in a fixture in the outside environment to house it, to hold the engine and measure the thrust of the engine. Yeah. It's still considered to be a type of test cell, but there's not four walls. So just to literally, no pun intended, ground us, let's talk about the... Well, I guess to, to be to be fair, you do have two walls sure. on the side of this, even if you're pushing the air through there. But yeah, uh, because one of the things too is you with that one, you'd have to contend with noise in a big way, right? As well, so, so quite an extreme example. But if we're presuming we've determined we need a test cell, I guess one of the most fundamental questions with how we test is: Are we going to look at a portable dyno or a fixed one? Yeah. So, have you had experience with both? I've only worked with fixed dynos, and I okay. understand the portable, but I've not used one myself. So some of the obvious portable test cells are when you need something that is temporary, or you need something that is being put in a remote location, that it's easier to put it in that location, all self-contained, all, everything's on it. So all you really need to do is add power to it and go. 
maybe it's a short-term project that's only going to last two years, um, and then you're never going to use it again. So you really don't want to make that significant investment. That's one of the scenarios. Another one will be is that I have experience with or had experience with is creating portable test cells because we needed to do end-of-line testing for one of the big three as they produced engines off the assembly line. So one of the requirements was is we needed to have testing capabilities no less or no more than 10 miles away from their facility in New York. The only way to do that basically is create these C-container test cells or portable test cells to test these engines, and we needed to test quite a bit of them. So it was a minimal investment as compared to brick and mortar, and that was a reason portable was chosen at that time. Because afterwards, the test cells go away. So we can take those test cells, uproot them, and go to another location and start doing testing. Well, tell me, do we lose any functionality or accuracy or any other features by going portable compared to non-portable? Well, typically, the accuracy can be addressed one way or the other, portable or non-portable, to have the same level of accuracy. Where where the constraints come into play is typically you're more in a confined environment. So you don't have a lot of area around you, and that's one of the constraints that you have. Most of the time, in a portable test cell, you're not going to typically have a emissions-compliant development test cell because those are more designed to be permanent infrastructures and there's more equipment required and typically it's not the easiest thing to do with a portability. That's a good point, Mike. I think when we look at those type of development cells, we need more space than you're going to get in a container type cell. need more room to stretch out, as it were. So I guess that also starts affecting the type of engine you can test. Right. And one of the things is talking about the comparisons, contrasting comparisons between the two is portable is once you've made that investment, you're stuck with that size. If you design a brick-and-mortar test cell, you're probably designing it with the future in mind in regards to having more room around you, you've got a mezzanine above you, and you can put into more flexibility into the design versus a portable test cell. Because again, one of the constraints of a portable test cell may be you only have so much floor space to do this testing. And that's where the portability comes into play as well, because it's a smaller footprint typically. So, yeah, so it starts limiting what you can add to the cell, what, what additional test features you can include, and becomes really a little bit constrained. So more for pass-off tests for just really short testing rather than what we'd refer to as development testing. Very good point. Typically, you don't see portable test cells as durability test cells. Right. So if we look then, we come back to the question of the type of engine. We can put any engine in in either cell, but obviously with the larger engines, that's going to push more towards a, a non-portable permanent test facility just because of the ancillaries that hang around it. Yeah, very good point. You have to look at the size, right? So with, with the size of an engine, there's several factors that come into play real quick. One is heat, right? So you're going to produce a heck of a lot more heat typically with a larger engine. And in a small environment, you know, it could be troublesome. But you've got the heat constraints. You've got the sheer vibration rotational mass issues you need to work through in a portable environment because you're going to be shaking that test cell pretty hard if you've got a large diesel engine in it, which you typically wouldn't do because it's not a portable type environment Right, right. when you test engines like that. So the type of engine, right? Small displacement gasoline versus large displacement diesel. Just the physical size. Marine applications, for example, not the easiest to do from a portability perspective with that type of environment. Just depends on the size and types of engines, and it ranges, as you can imagine. Right. 
We talked about the type of testing as well, and I think we'll go, I mean, the, the permanent test cell will obviously suit the development and the long-term testing more than a portable. So I think we've probably covered that one then. But as we go past these decision points, it starts to affect the budget. As we look towards a permanent cell, I guess we're looking at typically a higher budget as we're looking to have the bricks and mortar and other other aspects. Right. And one thing I just thought of while you were talking about it is you can't take away from the fact that when you talk about the portability and the portable test cell, your limitations are going to be cooling systems and fuel systems, right? So if you're running longer tests, you need more fuel. And it's not like you're going to be in an environment where they already have an existing 20,000-gallon fuel tank sitting in the back of their facility or buried underground. So even in cases where I've seen two portable test cells stacked on top of each other, so use the top level as storage and the bottom level as the test cell, you're still limited then on what you can carry in that space. So you're right, the amount of fuel you could carry, the amount of coolant you can carry is still going to be limited. Right. One thing I would like to mention is that while you were talking about that, you know, one of the other attributes that popped in my head is the speed to test, right? So if you look at brick and mortar, typically that's a slower process. It takes longer to put together a brick and mortar test facility than it will be a portable test facility or portable test container. Yeah. So if speed is what you need and a portability fits, then it's typically going to be quicker to test than a brick and mortar facility. One test facility I've had experience with was was in Europe where they had a number of portable test cells stacked up in a big rectangle and they had I think three floors of test cells and about five across and they would literally pull out a test cell if it failed or if they needed to change the engine they'd take the test cell out move things around and then plug it back in and keep testing. So even though we talk about temporary versus more permanent testing there are still solutions where what is ostensibly a portable test cell can work well in a more permanent environment. Yeah, I agree. It comes down to best bang for your buck. Yeah. You can make a portable test cell come pretty close to brick and mortar, but you're going to pay almost what it takes to be brick and mortar. To get that far, yeah. And, and speaking of personal experiences, the largest experience I had was portable test cells. So I was involved with approximately 13 C-container test cells at the OEM's engine manufacturing plant, and we were running engines. We were taking engines six at a time off their assembly line and put them into the test cell without tools, testing it for a minute, pulling it back out again, and we were going through engines one every three to four minutes. That sounds like quite the experience to pull that together. quite a bit. Nice work, nice work. So which one has the greater regulation control, the portable or the permanent? I guess they're both covered by regulations. We're still going to be aware of health and safety. But in terms of regulations, do you see it as a greater requirement in one or the other? I think it can be. I think it's hard to sometimes separate it. I think the biggest thing that is geographical location, whether it's portable or non-portable, I think a lot of the same constraints will be in place based upon your geographic location. And when I say that, there's going to be local requirements, state requirements, government requirements. You're going to have permitting involved with permission to permit to build, permit to operate, air permits from an exhaust emissions perspective. So you're going to have to deal with it to one extent or another. Again, we'll dive into it in future podcasts to more of the details behind whether you need it or not. Hopefully we can provide some more guidance around that. That's a good point. I think the same comments and 
limitations occur when we talk about fire risk, fire safety, and also the noise aspects of a test cell. Yeah, exactly. So from a fire aspect, it's somewhat self-explanatory. You've got to protect for if you're running a combustion engine that utilizes fuel of one kind or another. The last thing you want is any type of safety event or emergency, but they do occur. It's the reality, and you want to make sure you're properly protected. You have to consider the suppression systems in case of a fire. You also have to take into account you're running engines and you're not inside the normal vehicle that they would be installed. So you've got engine exhaust noises, you've got test cell noises that have to be considered. And there are regulations, there are OSHA guidelines around that as far as exposure to noise. So you have to deal with air emit air noise in regards to outside the building as well as inside the test cell itself in the control room. So it clearly is more of a challenge with the portable cell. If you're putting engine test equipment into a test chamber, still trying to fit everything else in to provide fair fire suppression and and noise protection. You're really getting a lot of content in a small space, which I'm sure becomes a bigger challenge then. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I can even stack on top of that. You have to then consider that was just noise. We talked about fire noise, but then you talk the emissions aspect, which you have fuel. So once you introduce fuel, You need to have containment for fuel. You need to make sure that you have monitoring for fuel spills, engine exhaust. You need to make sure that you are complying with how much pollutants you're admitting into the air. And there are regulations around that. Wastewater. When you get rid of the water you're cooling, if you're recirculating the water, that's one thing. But if you have a cooling system and you have evaporation of the water, there are actually restrictions in some facilities that say, you know, you need to understand how much water, chemically treated water, you're evaporating to the air. And that's getting to the nitty gritty details, but that's a consideration. And then again, I brought up spill protection as well. And does that vary from location to location? I mean, I can see it varying from country to country because some countries have less regulations than others. But I think if we're talking within the US, for example, even different regions would have the same regulations for most of this, I would expect. There is. It's from one extreme to another. And a lot of this, like I said earlier, there's different levels of regulation. There's the local regulations, the state regulations, government regulations. When it comes to the local, some of them are driven by the local fire departments in regards to environmental health and safety. So they're the ones that have the ultimate say in regards to what the fire protection needs to be. Okay. They're definitely involved in the discussions in most circumstances I've been involved with. And I can imagine there's a a preference with the fire people to go with a permanent test cell because the facilities can be more controlled and more comprehensive. And I think, short story, but for the areas that I've worked in, some of the municipalities had no experience with test cells and testing. So they relied on the owner to describe so they could understand better the risks associated with safety when it comes to fire and things like that. I spent a lot of time educating or informing the fire departments of what we're talking about, the fuel, how it's coming into the test cell, how we're protecting for it, what type of fire suppression system that we think it should be, and then getting their sign off on it saying, yeah, that's sufficient enough, or no, you need to add high hazard sprinklers on top of CO2 systems. Okay, then one of the sort of smaller aspects, although still very significant with the test cell, is the mechanical guarding. We're spinning objects at really quite high speeds at times, so we're going to need some mechanical guards to be in place to protect, be it for a portable or or non-portable cell. 
Again, it's what you want your guarding to be. It's how you want to protect. Most people, when they see guarding in front of equipment, they sometimes think that it's to stop things from coming apart and doing more damage. Traditionally, guarding is meant to keep you from interacting or getting into a situation where you're at risk of your hand getting caught in something, whether it be a drive shaft or a hot engine. All these things need to be considered. Typically in test cells when you're running, again, it's a future podcast, but when you're running, you need to set up the rules to protect your people. So that may be you don't go inside a test cell when it's running or you only go inside a test cell when it's idle. Yeah, I certainly don't want to put your hand on an exhaust pipe or a, or a spinning drive shaft. Yep. No, thanks, Mike. That's a good introduction to some of the fundamentals of test cell design. Really good discussion, thanks. I think uh, it'll be interesting our next discussion to start looking at the foundations around a test cell, what we need to include and uh, incorporate when we start laying out this design. Looking forward to it, Chris. Great. Thanks a lot, Mike. You bet. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Dino Insights, presented by Frood. If there are any engine testing topics you would like us to discuss, we'd love to hear from you. Please email us at podcast at fruitdino.com.